Ready? So welcome back to Diaries of the Wild Ones. Once again, a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia for supporting me in the adventurous lifestyle. If you guys need any gear for your next adventure, running, camping, climbing, hiking, you guys name it, these guys have it. So go to wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Also, a huge thank you to Free Brewing Co., organic preservative-free beer. You'll find them at Dan Murphy's and BWS. Big black can, silver letters that say free. Organic preservative-free beer. It's a no-brainer. Enjoy, guys. So you're about to meet one really interesting guy, Dean Jeffries. He's an activist and a documentary maker and a guy who's always stood up for the planet and humanity. So I met Dean while sailing north up the Queensland coast and just loved his stories about activism and shamanic practices. Now just note, listeners, I know right now in Australia and the world, we have a great divide with the COVID issue and we lightly touch on it in this episode. Everyone has their opinions and for me, I just don't like seeing people being divided. So let's just keep in the love space and with an open mind especially keep an open mind when when we start talking about dean's really cool psychedelic experiences in the amazon with their amazonian tribes which we dive into deep into the next episode that we do together all right enjoy this one guys going to so yeah i'm just excited you you let me know when you're ready you ready? Yep. <laughs> Are we all ready? Okay, we're all ready for the liftoff. Okay, wicked Dean Jeffries. Dean Jeffries. I'm j- Dude, we've been hanging out for the past pretty much 10 days. Right now, we're currently on your boat, Migaloo 2, which is a... Um, what type of boat is this? A catch? Yeah, it's a catch, 45-foot catch. Yeah, and I've been sailing. I hitchhiked with your son, Sage, and that's his episode. I literally just launched that this morning. Great, great story time. And obviously, he's learned so much from growing up on a boat with you. And, and you know, he's you know he's living such an adventurous lifestyle. But hanging out with him and hanging out with you and sailing over the, the past, you know, pretty much nearly two weeks now, you've just told me story after story after story and, and, and you've actually taught me so much and just like a, a few things you said last night, you know, it's really made me look at myself and my own morals and how I want to stand up and, and, and show up in this world and really be able to make a change and you're someone that's always done that. Like from, from what I've heard from the, the last couple of weeks with you, you know, you've been involved in so much activism and so much um, change and, and always followed like your heart and your passion and and love for the environment and so that's just where i really want to start with you is is where did you become an activist oh, sandra's going to jump up and just um sandra you beautiful girlfriend that you're sailing with she's just going to jump up and shut some blinds for us for this wind but yeah dean where does it begin for you like you having such a passion for the environment and, and wanting to protect it yeah, I was just thinking that the other day when I was uh, thinking about the interview and go, where did it all start? And I don't know, I guess it starts, you know, lifetimes ago and it's embedded in your DNA. But this lifetime, it sort of activated itself. I think 
I nearly remember the moment, you know. It was like I was 17 or 18 and I was in Wagga doing pottery and I was sitting in this circle of animal... Well, we set up the first animal liberation group in Australia because we're in a rural area and they were doing mulesing and there was live sheep exports going on and we're just sitting in this circle and then I felt this activation nearly like, okay, yes, we can do something about this. We as humans can stop this cruelty to animals and, and as a group we... We started becoming active. We did the first, you know, bumper stickers for animal liberation and then we, you know, started lobbying against, you know, animal cruelty. And and then it just sort of went on from there to, um, you know, in the early 80s, you know, there was a big uh, nuclear disarmament push. So, you know, we went to Canberra to try and stop uranium mining. um, And then there was, you know... Nuclear warship visits and all that stuff. So I started getting involved, yeah, back in the late 70s, early 80s. How did it feel when you started standing up for what you believed in? Like when you, like you're saying you're going to government house, I'm guessing, and and, and standing at the front and, and protesting and saying, hey, like we want change, you know, like... How did that feel to actually stand up for you, for what you believed in? It just seemed really natural. And like if I didn't do it, I wasn't being <clears throat> true to myself and true to humanity and existence in a way, you know, that, you know, if if you get that little message saying, oh, I should do that, but oh, I won't because, you know, my, my, my boss might sack me or I, you know, or people will ridicule me or whatever if you're not being true to yourself then you're not really living life you know and you're not giving something back i mean there's karma so there's there's what the good you've put out you get back you know and i don't do that because of that but it usually is what happens i mean i'm sitting here on a boat you know <clears throat> living my passion and and i think a lot of that is because you know i've chalked up a few good karma points you know through the through life and it's just the way life works you know you do good you get good back did you ever ever have that realization like oh well no one's actually going to do it, so I'm going to have to step up and do it. Yeah, I get that a lot, and sometimes I even feel a little bit guilty, you know, like I'm up here, you know, enjoying myself in the Great Barrier Reef, and, and my friends down in New South Wales are getting locked down and kept out of shops, and there's a whole bunch of discrimination going on. I start getting all these ideas about, oh, let's do a Gandhian-style salt march, you know, from Byron to Coolangatta, collect salt, you know, and we'll cross the border and we'll tell everyone to get stuffed, you know, because we're... <laughs> We're just going to do this because we're sticking up for our rights, you know, and freedom and freedom of movement and everything. So, yeah, I mean, I just, there's my mind just works like that. I'm, I guess I'm a, a strategist as well, you know. I've done a lot of study with nonviolent communication and nonviolent activism, you know. I, I, in the early 80s too, I um, got involved with a lot of forest protests down the southeast forests and we used to have base camps down there and, and people would come down from Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra and... And we'd, we'd train up these these um, students, you know, to be activists. And we'd put them through like a, you know, some serious training, you know, doing role plays. Okay, you, you're locked down to the bulldozer now and, and now this policeman's coming up and someone pretends to be a policeman and they go to grab you. How do you react, you know? And first, you know, some people will try and push off the policeman and, get, and they go, no, no, you sit in your power and your truth and you tell the policeman while you're there with love and compassion and... And so we're training people. So the Southeast Forest, you know, there's probably thousands of people out there now that have had that training, had that experience of standing up for what they believe is right, um, which are now, you know, possibly, you know, it's helped to mould their life and even stand up for their rights now, you know, about 
entering a you know not having to disclose your medical information if someone asks you yeah just and just setting your own boundaries so where has being an activist taken you well like i mentioned i I spent a couple of years you know um in the the southeast forest protest which ended up getting a lot of those forests protected into national parks it was a very successful campaign took a long time but what i realized then was that there's no point just being another number getting arrested if it wasn't getting out into the media and into people's minds and hearts of what was really going on so at that point i picked up a video camera and uh is is that because like you'd go down and like and protest and and try to do stuff to make change, but it just wasn't getting any coverage, so you'd end up in jail for the night, get arrested, and no one would know? Yeah, yeah, basically. And and so I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm more effective as an activist, you know, to film other people doing protests. So quite often I have a lot of hats on, you know. I've, I've, I'm strategizing actions, I'm training people, and then I'm actually filming the people getting arrested and, and teaching them how to, what to say or how to pre- say it, you know, as they're getting loaded in the back of the paddy wagon, but then filming that and then racing off to the news networks with a video tape and saying, hey, I've got this footage of like 20 people getting arrested and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and they go, oh, great, we'll stick it on the news tonight, you know. So that's that's how I got into into the filming side of things and that led me all around the world really to following not just what I saw as um, abuses um, happening in Australia but like first one in, when was that in the 90s I went to Sarawak there was the Penan people in there were uh, protesting against the logging companies coming into their lands as well like big trees so big forests Sarawak's a part of Malaysia and part of Borneo and it's you know one of the biggest forested islands out of the out of the uh, Amazon, apart from the Amazon, but it's been just decimated with like logging and palm oil. And palm and, oil, yeah. That's hold. where the orangutans yeah. are massively endangered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, so. Anyway, I heard about their efforts to stop the logging companies, but like like them, you know, if there's no media there, then if the blockade happens and no one sees about it, did it actually really happen? You know, so. I was connected with a group called the Rainforest Information Centre and, and they had lots of contacts over there. So they asked me if I wanted to go over and film this blockade that was going on. So I was like, yeah, yeah. So I grabbed the camera, went over, and then it was a, it was a whole big story about getting up to the blockade. It, you know, it took me three days, you know, going up river and then going up canoe and then trekking through the forest, you know, through the night time to get up there because we heard the cops were coming the next day and we get up there and there's probably a 100 tribal people and a few couple of headmen there and so I interviewed them about you know why they were there in front of the blockade with everyone going rah rah and and then I saw film you know got into a little hide in the bush and filmed the police coming and filmed that as well and eventually you know came back to Australia and gave that to I think it was the Daryl Hinch program at the time and some news networks and started to get that information out to the world about what was going on in there. And then that, then I went, wow, you know, I can do that, you know. So then I, what happened? I'm trying to think of the order. And then that's right. There was a, then there was the uranium protest out at um, Roxby Downs Uranium Mine in South Australia. And around that time, I started getting into hang gliding, and then uh, ultralight flying. I had a motorised hang glider, and I thought, oh, you know what? I, they, they've they've got all the roads blockaded around the mine site, but they've haven't got the air blockade, and they can't stop that. So I thought, I'll I'll take my ultralight out there. And I'll drop a reef of flowers on the main mine shaft, and and I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So I was going to fly all the way out there from from um, Bellingham, but it was just too far. So we got out there, and then I took off and 
had some guys go in beforehand and hide near the main mine shaft so that they could film it. And so they filmed me flying over the mine shaft and dropping a, a big a reef of flowers over the mine shaft. And then we raced that footage down to Adelaide and it was on all over the news that night that, you know, the protest is still going on and, you know, keeping it in people's minds about the dangers of uranium mining. And, and then I really felt the power of, you know, that we can be our own yeah. media representatives. We don't have to rely on Channel 9 or Channel 7. Well, we can't be what we can't see. And that's the thing. It's like just spreading, like being able to spread awareness and, sp- and spread your, your ideals. That's, you know, like it's, you know, I watch my parents, they just watch the news, my mum and stepdad, and they just are so fearful. And there, and there's an agenda there, you know, you, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, they're going to believe and soak in whatever they see. So if you can plant seeds in people's mind about awareness, it's like, it's like we were talking about earlier about Indonesia with the, with the beach cleanups with, um, when I lived in Indonesia and how bad the pollution in the ocean got there, but there was no connection with the people and that pollution because they just don't know there's just no awareness you know and if you sit down and like you know talk to them or you put it on the news or you put it on things and they can see it you know and that and just that spreading of information just showing that that's that's how you i suppose make change yeah yeah and a lot of that happens by utilizing the mainstream media so you know we we also did training in you know how to write press releases and how to get that out to who and you know it's it's, it's quite a process but anyone can do it you know like anyone can just write their name write a media release out and send it off to the news networks and the you know and then you can help get coverage for certain issues but you don't learn that in school you think you know the media is just for those people but anyone can just you know say press release and email that off to the uh you know to the researcher or the producer of a certain program be it radio current affairs tv news networks whatever you know and you have usually i have a big list of them you know i've got about 50 media people that i just send one press release out to and just goes boom out and i'm doing that you know at least three or four times every year there'll be some campaign that i want to publicize so i'll just sort of write a media release and send it out and quite often I'll get at least a few phone calls for radio interviews or TV interviews or whatever about a certain issue. Wow. Hey, when you when you do have the camera and you're filming, do you ever get backlash from like, say, like the pl- like when you're in Borneo in, in Sarawak? Was that the... Yeah. Did the police, if they saw you with the camera, because I, like, I know in Indonesia or Mexico, like, you know, don't film, they could attack you or like steal the camera or... You know, if they don't want it, has that happened to you? Yeah, well, we had to hide um, for that whole period. And I actually made a few copies of interviews and stuff and gave a few copies to different people and I met up with them in the town and we went different directions in case one of us did get stopped. We wouldn't lose all the footage. So, yeah, you've got to be careful uh, of what you're doing. But, yeah, you know, it's it's just what you do (laughs) and then that led me to once I started getting into ultralight flying and using that as a tool and also media then I I thought well you know I can use this this ultralight as other ways to get into areas where they've got the normal you know roads covered um, but they haven't got control of the airspace (laughs) so (laughs) yeah so I was involved with the Sydney Peace Squadron in um, was at the mid 80s and we used to protest against the nuclear warships that were coming into Sydney Harbour. So we had friends like Ian Cohen and a few others from the Byron region. We'd we'd get a call, you know, the night before sometimes, oh, there's a nuclear warship coming in. So we'd drive like 10 hours down to Sydney and arrive at 
Mrs. Macquarie's chair you know, near the opera house and go, OK, it's coming at 9 o'clock and we get out on canoes or speedboats, whatever we can find. And, you know, Ian and a couple of mates, you know, sometimes, I remember going out once and I was driving this boat and Ian was, he had his surfboard on there and we raced towards the front of this big nuclear warship coming in, big American ship coming into Sydney Harbour and there'd be all these police all around but we just drive straight at them and they couldn't stop us. And then we get to ride in front of the ship. I'd, I'd stop the motor. Ian and another guy would jump out on surfboards and then I'd take off and then they'd just take a couple of strokes and then they'd grab hold of the front of the warship on their surfboard and get dragged along Sydney Harbour, you know, holding on to the front of this nuclear warship. You're kidding. Did so you? so then we'd film that as well and the media would film it and, and, <laughs> and get world, world coverage about opposition to nuclear warships and then we'd raise the issue about nuclear accidents and being involved with the nuclear arms race and all that stuff. Oh, I just had this thought about like you know how good it is everything that you're doing with that and like spreading awareness and that and then i just saw like the other side of the coin which is like just pissing off like the army or pissing off the government or the local council you know yeah. oh not this guy again oh he's in his plane oh yeah <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean? yeah well i mean they used to get the fire hoses out and fire hoses but then that would work in our favor i've had i've been blasted with two fire hoses from different directions but you know if you get that on the on camera then the then the australian population when they see that said what are these yanks doing they're fire hosing us australians who are just sort of saying like we want you know peace or whatever you know so sometimes it works in our favor in your favor yeah and then there's been you know from from that the sydney peace squadron days and i still have my ultralight on board i um i took off exactly twice um but the first time I've, i took off from rose bay on a amphibian ultralight and flew over the nuclear warship and uh dropped a bag of yellow paint on it so <laughs> <laughs> ended up spending a, a month in jail after that but really uh, how did you get arrested from that oh well i you know as i landed i mean part of the non-violent strategy is not necessarily you know it's taking responsibility for your actions you know so yeah. i i just landed and then the cops just grabbed me and and um and then i used the whole court system as a as another tool you know went to court seven times and the media loves showing the footage of me flying over this warship and dropping a paint bomb on it and uh and so you know went to court seven times we had qc's i suppose the, the more media it gets the more times you go to court the more coverage it gets the exactly more, more your message gets out <laughs> exactly there. exactly and um we had qc's and i think i worked out including the time they put me in jail and them having to put up qc's and everything it would have cost the government at least you know fifty thousand dollars to you know to arrest me you know and and everyone else who was you know constantly you know getting arrested and taking it to court and everything you know it, it's also a way of of them going oh fuck these guys again let's just sort of let them do what they do or let's just change the law or let's just stop the nuclear warships coming in because they're actually getting so much publicity and 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 people are finding out what's really going on so you know that's a general way of just sort of wearing them down a bit wow did you did you so you started seeing change with with a lot of the things you're doing? Yeah, I suppose well, that's why you kept doing it. Yeah, well I mean the the forest we, you know we basically won the forest campaign turned that into national parks. The nuclear warships just stopped coming for some mysterious reason. Um, uranium mining they stopped, you know, opening up more uranium mines. Um, so what do you say to people that you know they, they stopped getting involved in the nuclear arms race a lot more in Australia and yeah I mean lots and lots of wins you know all over the place so what do you say to people that because you know we've, we've seen it right now like we're pretty much not even allowed to protest anymore but it's like so what do you say to people 
of like, you know, like why why aren't we standing up? Well, I'd say to people, if they're telling you not to protest, then protest more, you know, because that's our right to be able to protest. I mean, it's in our constitution, you know, right to assemble. Um, I remember when, uh, when they tried to install 5G in Mullumbimby, they came down with a cherry picker and and they're going like, oh, yep. Yeah. And this is during the first lockdown last year. And we're all supposed to stay inside, you know. And then they're installing 5G, which they knew that the community there didn't want. And, you know, there was like a few hundred people all turned up going, oh, no, stop 5G, you know. You know, some people don't realise where their power is. And, um, you know, we had a blockade going because the cherry picker was blocked in by a car and, you know, um, some people said, oh, you might as well just move it, they're going to tow it away. He says, no, we've got a blockade, let's let's go with a blockade, you know, let's stop it, you know, like, fuck them, you know. And so, you know, I, I, I sat down and a few other people sat down in front of the car and the cops are there trying to stop us and this cop's got his knee in my back and I said, you know, hey, I think we should perform a citizen's arrest against this policeman, he's not doing social distancing, he's got his knee in my back. And then straight away the uh, the inspector just pointed at me and then about four cops all grabbed me and chucked me in the back of this paddy wagon. <laughs> I haven't been arrested for a long time since then, up till then. So what are they? What what were the charges? What are they arrested? Oh, well, they ended up, they dropped the charges because they, they had nothing, you know. They said, you've got to move off the footpath. I moved off the footpath. They've got to follow rules, you know. So you just got to know what the rules are and then just sort of, you know, work your way around that a little bit. Okay. And sometimes you just got to confront the rules and confront it in court and stand up for it. Can they arrest you and then just to get rid of you and then just drop that's the charges? What, that's, that's what, what they what did. They you know, they, they they drove me around the corner to the police station. They said, right, um, you know, part of the conditions of us letting you go is that you won't go back to the protesters. And the protesters already finished that day. I knew there was not going to be anything more. I said, yeah, fine. You know, I just walked out and I said, I'm being charged. And well, we're, we're looking into whether we're going to charge you or not, you know. <laughs> do do so. they know you? Do, do the Byron Shire, oh. like, p- police or council... Are you known that? Oh, look, I've been fairly low-key in the last decade or so, like as far as arrests and direct action goes. But I'm still active in, you know, letters to the editor and social media. And, you know, there's there's a few people who know who I am. Down there. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me more protest stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the... I mean, the, the, the Warship one was a big one. You know, that, that was pretty confronting. I remember... Like I, I dropped the paint bomb on the on the I think it was the Buchanan American warship, the same one that was prohibited from going into New Zealand, and then uh, you know that court case dragged on for about a year or so, and then at that time another British warship, um, a, a Harrier Jumpjet uh, warship, came in nuclear capable as well, oh, no, and I you thought didn't. and I thought oh well. You know, this case you is still pending, it. so I took off from Manly from this wow, oval and, and, and flew over it. This time I dropped a wreath of flowers over it, you know, and that was a... And I, I actually got it this time. I got it right on the missile bay. The last one with the paint bomb, I actually missed by about a metre. It probably still splashed a bit of yellow paint on it, but this one I, I actually got with a wreath of flowers. So as I was landing, the cops just sort of grabbed me, you know, arrested me. But, you know, as I was getting loaded in the back of the car, and this is the money shot, you know, the cops have got you on each side, you're getting pushed in the back of the paddy wagon or whatever, and then you've got your, your five or ten seconds of fame that the media's on you. You're in the, you know, you're being confronting something. says, there's nuclear weapons on that warship. There's 20 Hiroshima's there, you know, da, 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 they shouldn't be here. Boom, you know, and that's yeah. all over the news that night, you know, and people going, wow, we've got like 20 nuclear, you know, potentially bombs in, in our harbour at the moment, you know, and so people just start thinking, King and yeah wow <laughs> so then that led yeah. me you know then i started making a lot of contacts you know in the non-violent action 
thing because you know I could see the power in that you know yeah. and I studied Gandhian philosophy of uh, you know nonviolence and and looked into some other heroes too Martin Luther King Nelson Mandela people who have used nonviolence as a strategy you know to achieve big change I mean Gandhi virtually you know got the Indian uh, the uh, English population and government removed from India through nonviolence you know without a I mean there was some bloodshed but um, not yeah the Indians didn't fight back you know it was the the English brutality that that actually helped to bring about the change you know it's hard to fight in the face of love you know if someone's coming with this and they drop their sword and their shield and they just stand there with their arms open and so vulnerable yeah you know what I mean it's it's like you've got to be very in your ego to to go forward with that because all you're seeing with someone with their heart open like that is a brother yeah, well, I mean, that's that's how it virtually ended in, in India. Uh, I don't know if you know people have seen Gandhi, the film, or know a little bit about mm. history, but the salt marches and the walk on the salt mines actually was the, 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 the linchpin that sort of brought the whole Indian government down because the, the whole world saw these people in love walking up the salt mines and, and the police and they're just beating them with batons and then more people would just walk calmly in love up to the batons and, and then had the women carrying them off and you know nursing them and then they just had a line of like a hundred hundreds of people just walking up to these guys with batons just getting shit beat out of them but the the media was there and they filmed it and that went out to the world and then it was just like oh come on guys like enough's yeah. enough you know and, yeah, and leave these people alone yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, just fuck off you know <laughs> yeah yeah <clears throat> so that was um <clears throat> so i met a lot of people in the non-violent action community and then then the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 1991 sort of was, was starting up or was threatening to start. So we just connected through various international networks. And, and it Is was, that just because of the, the network that you're in because you connected with everyone? They just kind of put the world out like, hey, we need some help over here. Yeah, someone had the idea of doing a, like a, a Gandhi-style Satyagraha um, in, uh, interventions where you actually set up a, a, a camp or peace camp in between potentially two warring armies, you know. It's like if you're in a, a pub brawl and you get in between them and go, you know, stop, stop, you know, like let's just sit down and talk about this. Shut so, up. So Why are you scared? Oh, there was moments. <laughs> like the Middle East? Well, the, the idea was that we'd be like human shields. So we went over, about 100 of us from 15 countries, and uh, we went to uh, first Jordan, then went went into Iraq to Baghdad, and then <clears throat> we went down to a uh, pilgrim resting post that was on the border between um, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, not far from where Kuwait was. So we set up this camp, and and we were sort of like, so you're just camping, like is it just... well, it was we 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 were supported by the Iraqi uh, government, obviously, because we had to have their permission to go in there and set up camp. So we got some, uh, supplies. Uh, I'm not sure how they were, you know, I'd say the Iraqi government probably supplied some of the tents and stuff that we stayed in, yeah. but it was a big pilgrim resting place. So it's already set up with latrines and water systems and stuff. And we just camping in the middle of the desert for, I think it was about six weeks and about, uh, half of that was before the war and half that was while the war was going on. We had, we had planes going over, we had bombs going off around us. And Was it scary? Yeah. I mean, like I, you're, you're in the middle of it. <laughs> that you could get caught in between you and you're sitting there going, oh, hey, guys, come on, please don't hurt each other. And yeah. then there's and then bullets starts. flying past. Yeah. yeah and then, then once it starts, you've seen a brawl. It's like, it's like it's sharks. Once they, you know, they're cool around you and then once they get into a frenzy, they're in a frenzy. Same, yeah. with, same with humans. Yeah. 
you know. Well, my biggest scare, really, and, and concern was that the um, that either the Iraqis or the Americans would come in pretending to be the other side and shoot us all, and then blame the other side <gasps> that they, that they sh- shot us. You know, because yeah. it's all a propaganda war. So that was our biggest concern. But as it turned out. Uh, you know, the war started, you know, I think it was really close to, you know, the world stopping that, you know, the amount of protests that were going on around the world really thought it was going to stop the war, you know, because it was just such a bullshit war and most people could see through it. You know, there was no weapons of mass destruction. That was just a a ploy ploy by the the American government to get control of the oil fields and and everything else in the Middle East. So, like, to risk your life like that, you obviously believed in it so much. You know what I mean? Like you believed in pe- in peace in the world. Like it's like you're literally to do something like that. You're at the point where you're risking your own life to spread change. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I don't know. That's that's honourable. No, it's like it's like heroic because what it is, it's like you're willing to die by the sword for what you believe in, for what's in your heart. Yeah, and and sometimes I I wonder. Doesn't everyone have that gene? I mean, mm. uh, is it just that, you know, people who would do that for their, their daughter or their son, but when it comes to humanity, you know, where is that same gene, you know? Mm. And, and I, sometimes I don't understand where, why there's not more people standing up to a lot of the draconian measures that are being pushed out, you know, by our government at the moment, you know? Like, I just read this morning that, you know, Dan Andrews in Victoria wants to extend emergency powers permanently. And how convenient that is, you know, to have absolute complete control into the future. And, you know, there's, you know, I don't know. I just think people have got to stand up to it. And I don't know how that looks, you know, but I've, I've, I've been impressed by at least some people standing up and being prepared to cop a $1,000 or $5,000 fine, you know, just to stand up for their rights, you know, because if we don't, then we just get trampled on. Well, what, what do you say to the other side of the coin when people say, oh, but we, we need to for our protection or we need to for, for this or to be safer or... Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I've had that conversation with my sister, you know, and, and, and others. Um, and uh, a lot of people have this faith in government and all the established systems like the media and the medical professions and Big Pharma and all this stuff. They have trust there. And I think it's a false trust because they haven't earned it. It's more of a, a trust that um, is there because they fear the concept, they fear the alternative, you know, they, yeah, they, yeah. they fear being sovereign, they fear, fear being free and independent, you know, and they, it's like they need some authority figure over them to sort of hold them in some sort of container, whereas that, it's just a false container and it's based on fear and corruption. Mm. I suppose you only just have to look into history to, to know if, um, we can always trust the government. <clears throat> Yeah, well, or, or big business or big corporation, like, oh, are they really in it for the people? And I think, you know, it's like, yeah, my, I don't know, I don't know where yeah. I stand on any of it because I'm just learning. But it's like, yeah, like my mum, you know, she's really confident that you know people only do things for the people, you know, and so she's like, oh no, they just make this stuff because it's what's best for us, or like this rule comes in because it's what's best for us. And I, and I love that my mum's like that because she just has such faith and love in humanity and just thinks everything's for the best mm. but it, it kind of when you look at history it ain't <laughs> you know well, what I mean or when you look at like this rainforest getting like cut down and then you know this huge hotel or a mine or something or the mine you know Adani <laughs> you know what I mean going up you're like this ain't for 
the humanity, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and it's not, it's not. You don't have to go far to sort of see the various uh, interests involved. You know, like most politicians of getting backhanders from, you know, companies and or companies lobbyists. I mean, you know, there's a number of politicians that have quit their job and end up being lobbyists for the coal industry or for the, you know, the uranium industry or the pharmaceuticals or whatever. So it's a revolving door. Uh, and I've seen too many campaigns where there's various interests involved that uh, aren't there really to serve the the average person. They're there to serve, you know, m- big profit and, for, and more control by the powers that it be. And that's why I I, I challenge them whenever I, I can, whenever I see an injustice going on. Yeah. Do you ever get called... It's funny, what I've seen lately is just now this word just gets thrown out, conspiracy conspiracy theorists with anyone that stands up against the government or says like that this ain't right and I I think that's just the worst word because I think you know we've always like throughout history the people have always stood up you know what I mean like that's why you know that's why America has to the right to bear arms in their constitution you know so they can you know stand up like they did once before in the civil war and so I just find it yeah so interesting that that now, like anyone that wants to stand up, it kind of gets shunned or shamed by saying like you're a conspiracy theorist or, or something. And I'm like, where is cons- I? Like I'm on the outside of this looking in, and like when I'm looking in, I just I, that's the one thing I've questioned is like, where's the conspiracy? Like, is it a conspiracy or is he just he just doesn't like this and wants to change it? You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, conspiracy theorist theory is used to try and discredit people. You know, that they're just making things up. But when you look. I mean, just looking at the COVID thing, for example, I mean, we used to, t- I-, I was talking about like, you know, a COVID passport, you know, if we follow this road down, we're going to see COVID passports, we're going to see apartheid, we're going to see a cashless society, we're going to see no jab, no work, no pay, no play, no anything. All this is, it's either happened or it's in legislation at the moment trying to happen, you know, and it, you know, they call it conspiracy theories even a year ago. But now we're actually seeing it like it's it's, so it's for real, out, you know. Yeah. And it's, that was just a convenient thing. I mean, even the politicians were saying, "Oh, those conspiracy theories saying we're going to have a vaccine passport." But look at it now, you know. I, I can't even get my daughter up up here from New South Wales to come sailing with me because they've closed the Queensland border to everyone who's not vaccinated, you know. And that's just um, ridiculous, especially when you consider that the vaccine, you know, you're, you you you're just as likely to pass it on whether you're vaccinated or not so you know the science behind it isn't real and uh, you know i mean you could get me going on the whole vaccine story but you know it's uh you know there's it's another example as far as i'm concerned of 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 powers that exist wanting more power and and more control and you know i think you know the way things are heading it's going to be we're going to be like china soon you know unless we stand up to it you know we're going to have a social credit system where you know, you won't have any cash and you'll, you know, if you... If you jaywalk, if you, you jaywalk, you get money deducted from your account, you know. Mm. And don't they have a point, yeah, a point system? Uh, points, yeah, it's, it's, it's like bye-bye freedoms. And that just starts with the, you know, with the, you know, oh, we'll just, I mean, remember in the beginning of this, is oh, we'll just lock down for a couple of weeks just to flatten the curve, you know. And now it's two years later and they're still going, well, we'll just 
you know, keep this closed border, you know, just to keep things safe. And it's like, mm, I just don't like the divide that's happening. I just don't <laughs> like, like, I'm just on the fence about everything, but I just, don't, I just hate the divide and love and people getting against each other, you know? Like yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen a lot of hate happen and, and it's the old like div- divide and conquer thing, you know. Mm-hmm. That's a strategy that's been used too by powers that structure. You know, put two, you know, peoples against each other, and then they don't have, you know, the government doesn't have to do the work. They can do the work. Yeah, the people fight each other, you know. And and that's what you've seen throughout your protesting life is that exact strategy <clears throat> constantly being put in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd like, always be like when we were down the forest protest. The news cameras would focus on someone with dreadlocks, and you know, they yeah. go, "Oh, they're all the dirty hippies," you know, but. You know, as it as it, you know, the reality is, it's like it's everyone. It's mum, dads, you know, it's professors, it's students, it's whoever, you know. But the the media usually has an agenda, um, <clears throat> and they don't mind pushing yeah. that at the consequence of dividing the community. Like now, it's like, oh, the the unvaxxed, you know. It's like, no, nah, we're all we're all just humans here. Before you know, like in Byron, everyone was smiling at each other, you know, going into shops. And now it's like, you know, there's someone standing at the door. Have you been vaccinated or not? I says, well, it's my medical privacy. You know, I don't need to tell you. And I says, oh, well, you get out. Blah, blah. You know, it's just this angry thing, and the government strategized that. You know, it's it's. It just wants to divide people, and we've got to be very careful, you know, to to bring it back to 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 love and unconditional love, and and even in in everything that I do, I, I'm sort of looking at, you know, sometimes I get angry about something, and I go, oh no, no, bring it back to love, connection. We're all humans, you know. They're just scared, you know. They've been caught up. They believe the fear, propaganda, and lies that they're being fed every night on the news, and. Uh, and and they're scared and so you know for me it's been I've, I've got to sort of acknowledge that there's a lot of scared people out there that are being controlled by their fear and that's one thing i've always held dear to me is never let fear control me mm. you know so no matter what situation like well you're not a, you're not a hero you're not your hero if you <clears throat> yeah you're not you you're not a hero if if you're folding to fear I, I, I say it on every podcast nearly it's like as soon as you fear you die yeah and that, in, in every sense of the term like you, you lose yourself you're not living your truth if you're you know hiding behind fear just in any scenario yeah what, and, where, that, and that um that that's true with the, with the gulf war you know i mean i had to look at like we're, we're going over there we're going into a friggin war zone with with the most powerful countries in the world and we're sitting right in the middle of it you know and, and a hundred and so, of you yeah, and <laughs> yeah. so we had to sort of deal with that the threat of, you know, and the possibility of, like... Were you scared? Like, were you- Look, I remember a time when um, when we'd been evacuated from the peace camp back into Baghdad, you know, because the war had started. A lot of people thought, well, there's no point us being here anymore. We tried to stop it and it didn't, didn't work, you know. And now they're shooting over us. Well, of. at us, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we were in Baghdad and there was, like, you know, every night there'd be sirens going off and we'd go down to the fallout shelter and... And one funny story, well, funny, um, yeah, we, we went down to the fallout shelter again and we heard from one of the, we were sitting in the bomb shelter, you know, with like two separate containers of two inch reinforced, uh, two, two meters thick reinforced sort of concrete all around us, way down deep in this tunnel. And um, this guy's telling us, oh yeah, did you hear that um, Israel said that if uh, Saddam drops another Scud missile on us, we're going to nuke him. So we're sitting in Baghdad, ground zero, you know, in this fallout shelter thinking, fuck, we could have a nuclear bomb land on top of us at any moment, you know. Oh my God. How did you get out of Baghdad? Well, 
we we organised a bus to um to to get us from Baghdad to Jordan, but it was, it was like a sixteen hour drive, or maybe it was twelve hours or something. So we had to do it during daylight hours because all the any um road traffic was getting blown up by the Americans, the F-18s. They'd just come in see a, 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 a truck or anyone bringing supplies and they'd just blow it up. And so as we were driving along the road, there's all these burnout, you know, still smoking trucks from being blown up from the night before or whatever. So we travelled along in the daytime and and so we, we, we did got... Did you have to let the Americans know, like, hey, you're in this bus, <coughs> like, we did. don't blow us up? Yeah, we did. And and even when we were in the peace camp, we put a big, you know, they all knew that we were there and we put a big peace sign on, on the shed, you know, so they knew, you know, that it was us. But that was no guarantee. We thought, you know, that someone could blow us up and pretend it was someone from the other side. Yeah, so could be more of a target. Oh, God, yeah. what a... So anyway, we were about two hours away from Jordan and we got a flat tire on the bus. And the sun's starting to go down, you know, and the guy couldn't get the get the nut off the off the nut. So we're all out there, like we've got this you know, two meter extension bar and there's three of us all bouncing on this pole to try and get this nut off so we'd get out of there by before the night went, because otherwise we could have got blind. Oh, yep. oh my god. <laughs> that would have been the hardest the most um adrenaline wheel change ever. Yeah, it was like, come on, let's get this wheel on, get the fork out of here. And then once you got to um across the border yeah, once we were in Jordan, we were all fine, you know, and, we, and then we just had was to o- organise, um, you know, getting the plane back to Australia, which was a little bit tricky because there was no flights sort of going. Yeah, was there heaps of people just trying to flee? <clears throat> so, like, that's what I was thinking, like, if there's a from, war from going Iraq, on, like, yeah, yeah, like nah, civilians trying to flee. No, nah, because that road was just getting picked off. Everyone who was driving on was just getting picked off. So we were lucky, you know, maybe they knew it was us in a bus. I think we had two buses and in convoy and... We told the American embassy before we're doing it, and so you did, know. Did you see a lot of fear, like being in a war zone and war starting around you? What were the the local? What was the vibe? What was the locals like? You know, like that are in Baghdad, like knowing that at any moment, you know, like women and children, you know, the bombs are going to be dropped on them. Yeah, look, it was a it was a reality sandwich. It was like pretty full on. You know, I mean, we I spoke to, you know, parents who'd had their children die in a in a house. Bom- you know, they they were just in their house in a su- suburb, and a and a bomb just hit their house, and they lost three of their children. You know, came out from work, and the house has crumbled, and there's you know half his family's dead. You know, and I we went and interviewed those people, and it was like it was heartbreaking. You know, and they're just like normal people. They speak another language, and their colours are a bit different. But you know, these guys were like serious and victims of the, of a ploy, a sinister ploy by the government to invade a country for a, weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. Just to get the oil. So you're sitting there right now, you're, you're, you're seeing, like when you're there, you're seeing the connection of actually what is happening like on in humanity. Like you're seeing like brothers and sisters, you know, losing their, their children. Yeah. You know, and and when you're a Westerner from the outside, you're looking in and it's like, well, this country's just invaded so they can take some oil. And now you're looking at humans dying over it. Like just... Yeah, so you can wonder why I don't have much trust in, in, in governments and, and no, corporations. Like it's just, and, yeah, and like because when you see that with your own eyes and then... And I and it makes so much sense, you know, seeing something like that for you to be able to... um, For, for you wanting to stand up so much. That is, that's hectic. Like, that is so heavy. And the thing is, we watch movies on this stuff all the time. This is what trips me out. It's like, we watch movies on it. We read books about it. It's in our history. Everything's in our history. And then they're like, 
and then people like have that disconnected to that's what actually happens or goes on yeah look it's it's the hip pocket nerve a lot of time you know like people won't actually get involved in anything unless it directly affects them you know or their or what's in their wallet you know and so you know i guess part of what i try to do too is inspire you know touch people in their hearts so they're not they're not feeling something from their hip pocket from their wallet they're feeling it from their heart so you know if if if, uh they own a business in Byron and uh, the government's telling them that, you know, they're, they're supposed to, you know, check everyone who walks in if they're vaccinated or not. That, you know, they, then they can look into their heart and go, geez, do I really want to live in a society that segregates people and classes people and, and restricts people? And, or do I want to live in an open, loving society? So everyone's got a choice. And uh, fortunately, a lot of people around Byron and Mullumbimby, they're actually putting posters out in the front of their shop saying, we will not discriminate against any of our clients. You know, your medical history is your business. It's not our business. Mm. So everyone's welcome. So there is resistance happening. Whether it's enough, you know, um, I guess history will tell. Yeah. So from from being in, in Baghdad and then getting back to Jordan, making it back to Australia... Then, then what happened? <laughs> like, then what happened <laughs> in you your what, life? I got, I got, oh I got down at the airport and kissed the ground. I, really, when I got back to Australia, it was like, oh my God, I'm actually home. And I kissed the ground. And I love you, Australia. Like, you know, this is crazy. What's did, going did on? Did you ever, thought, ever have a thought that like, you know, maybe that was like just like stepping the boundaries a bit too much for you? You like, No, like, because I, 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 make... I went back 10 years later and did the same thing again. Oh, tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there was the original invasion, and then there was then they put like really full-on sanctions on it, so people couldn't they couldn't even get medical supplies in there, and they didn't get Saddam. They just sort of got them out of Kuwait, and then Saddam was still in power. And then what Bush Jr. came in and says, "Well, let's do it properly. Let's go and finish off what my dad started," you know. And uh, so then they wanted to go and do the the other big push. So I got a phone call from one of the organisers from the earlier peace camp and said, hey, we're doing it again. I said, you in? I said, yeah, you bet. Um, so this time we just went to, to Baghdad. We didn't go and sit in a peace camp, but we did actually uh, fly down to a hospital down in one of the areas where that was invaded before and they used depleted uranium there. So, you know, there's all the the repercussions of the, the previous invasion were in the hospitals, you know, there's kids with like leukemia and stuff because of the depleted uranium and So what's and then, depleted uranium? That's from well, the they bombs? Well they use that they use that, yeah, in the in the in the bombs and the and the um, ammunition to penetrate the the tanks and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's heavy stuff. And so anyway, we went over there, there was about fifty of us again and we just stayed in like um hotels in Baghdad but we had a presence there for the you know, in the lead up to the next invasion that they that they did. I left just before the invasion started and a couple of friends who were there at the previous um, blockade they, they stayed on. There was a priest from um WA, he he stayed on during the whole invasion in yeah. Baghdad while, you know, there was tanks marching down the street and and uh yeah. So yeah, it's 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 crazy stuff, but sometimes you just got to do it. Wow. <laughs> so it wasn't as scary the second time. You didn't think you were going to Uh the second time <laughs> we actually got out before the war started, you know. Yeah. We just had well, a, had a presence the first there. Time. The first time, you know, we'd wake up, you know, I remember waking up in the in the morning someone saying, "Oh, did someone say, "Oh, it started." Because there was this deadline given and and wake up in the morning I'd, I'd 
ran out. I remember I put my jumper on back the front because it was just like, oh my God, what's going on? You know, and went running out and outside the tents. We're going, yeah, look. And we could see like jet fighters going over the top of our camp on their way to Baghdad. And then we turned the radio on and we could hear the bombs going off in Baghdad, you know, and thought, fuck, they've started, you know. And, and we're sitting there going, oh no, you know, and we just stayed up for the rest of the rest of the night just going, oh my God, you know, we, we thought we'd... We'd, we'd won this we thought we'd built up enough momentum because I guess we were like the emissaries too for some of the countries like there was 10 of us from Australia and they all knew we were here and uh, or there and, and they were doing big protests and, and it's like yeah our, our, our lads over in Iraq you know so and then we were feeding information back to them as well you know whenever we could send a letter out and stuff Yeah. so you know we were like you know speaking up for the for the Australians who didn't want the war physically I'm yeah. so happy that there's people like you exist because oh, it's well. the people that just you know step up. it's you know like this these the islands that we're on right now you know like wherever there's a national park that's happened because people have protected it you know, like yeah, where the natural world is still beautiful, it's still happening because it hasn't it because it's been protected. Mm. You know, because someone at some stage has stood up and said, "Hey, you know." Yeah, I mean that's so true. I mean, look at Fraser Island. I mean, they were logging that, um, you know, a few years ago, and um, you know, it was through protests there. You know that um, you know I wasn't at that one, but some other friends were at, and um, that. Uh, that made that into a World Heritage National Park. I mean, there's so many stories, you know, and, and if it wasn't for people standing up for it, you know, it'd just be, Australia would just be a big mining colony. So what, oh, sorry, there's a boat going past all way, but um, so what, what happened after? What happened? <laughs> I just, yeah, I just no, it, it just goes on. <laughs> well, after, after Iraq, you know, I sold my farm and, and then I just sort of wanted a big change, you know, so I sold my farm, paid off my debts, bought a video camera, a box of tapes and a world ticket via the Amazon, you know. And then I just disappeared in the Amazon for a year. What 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 drew you to the Amazon? Just the wildness of it, I guess, you know. I, I sort of like to push the the edges, you know, the boundaries of everything, you know. And and the Amazon just represented this wildness and the indigenous people there and some uncontacted people there as well, you know. Not that I wanted to contact them, but I I just loved the the fact that they were there, you know. Yeah. And so I, I went there I went to the Earth Summit in Rio. Then I went up to a friend in Ecuador who I knew was working on some uh, environmental campaigns there and, and some indigenous campaigns to try and help the indigenous people to get more land rights because they were getting invaded by oil companies and loggers and colonists and all that stuff. So I even got involved in a few of those campaigns and ended up spending nearly two years or you know, in Ecuador and the Amazon region. I, dude, you're kind of blowing me away here. Like, just how much you've stood up for. Like, I can't... Like, it's just... Thank you. <laughs> it's like... Like, when you said that thing about Fraser Island just before, like, it's like, does it scare you that they're bringing in such restrictions on protesting for Australia? Oh, look, totally. Because yeah. then anything can just happen. Like, if we don't have a voice, like Fraser Island, you, you well, know what uh, I mean? It's like, and, and, like, you know, the, the 5G in, in Mullum that I was telling you before, I mean, they didn't... they wanted to install 5G, even though they knew the community didn't want it, during a lockdown. And they used the lockdown laws to try and stop people from protesting. And the same thing that they're doing now. They're saying, you're not allowed to protest anything because, you know, we say so. 
And that's social distancing. Oh, look, the whole scam of it all, you know, even though, you know, they still allow 50,000 people at an AFL gathering, but you can't protest with 100 people, you know, it's, it's, it's control. And a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people believe the mainstream narrative that it's, uh, you know, it's for our good, you know, but, you know, look at history, look at, you know, Hitler and the health pass and, you know, it just put a star on your chest just to label that you're a Jew and or an unvaccinated person, you know, with a vaccine passport. You know, it's it's the same thing through going on through history, you know, and, and yeah, I, I think we've really got to stand up to it. And I, I don't know exactly how that looks, you know. I mean, I did have an idea the other day. I was sitting here and go, oh, salt march, you know, Gandhi salt march, we'll cross the border, you know, and, and make it symbolic. Um, you know, that we're all crossing the border, a thousand people all together, you know, to collect salt in in Coolangatta Beach, you know. Yeah. And, you know, things like that can help people, you know, put things into context and history and, and, and self-empowerment and a whole bunch of issues. It's funny I, when you're saying like, you know, like it's, you know, always happened in history and you said like Hitler. And I started thinking about because... You know, you just started talking about the Amazon and the and the the logging companies and oil companies coming in and the tribes people there, and I started thinking about what restrictions they would have getting put on put on them. You know what I mean? Like it's like um, like how was that for you seeing that firsthand? Like seeing like a tribe, like a, you know, like a community of people living their life, and then an external source coming in, external rules coming in, and changing their life. You know what I mean? It's just funny. I'm relating that as what's happening right now to this happening to this tribe. You know, and we, we go, oh, this poor tribe, blah, blah. But it's actually happening to us. We're a tribe. We're a community. Our tribe, yeah. You know? And there's like a big business, big government. <laughs> like, like, so, so how did it happen in the Amazon? Well, I mean, the, the project that I got involved with was um, with the Rainforest Information Centre again. And um, they were working to demarcate these tribal boundaries of these Warani people who were just living in the jungle, deep in the jungle, and but the colonists were invading it and the oil company. So we wanted to put a fence around it, but you can't just put a fence. You've had to build a living fence in there. So we'd walk around with a surveyor and we'd work along the line and we'd go with 20, you know, macheteros and we'd cut a line through this dense jungle and we plant palm trees in a straight line through the jungle, so that made a, a living fence. And so that was um, that was a big project, and there was lots of different, you know, uh, camps and demarcations that we did um, during the, you know, the year that I was there. But yeah, just seeing, you know, I remember talking to, interviewing the, a jaguar shaman out there, and uh, who's part of that tribe, and he's saying, yeah, that you know, he, he really hates the. Um, the oil companies because they they come in and they they offer you know um, jobs to the tribal people to go and work for the oil companies and you know so the families are losing their 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 workers who normally you know go out and hunt monkeys or plant euchre or whatever and provide and they disappear for weeks or whatever at a time um, but then they come back with a a new dress and a bag of rice for the wife you know so it's totally changing the whole culture there and plus and there's all the value pl- systems and the whole value systems and and everything and, and then there's all the pollution that happens with the oil the oil mining you know um you know there's always having spills there and you know the river's turning black with oil and and once they build an oil road in then they um the colonists follow in along the oil roads and expand out from that because 
roads is sort of like access to the forest. Yeah. Have you ever seen, there's that island in the Solomons um, that Australia invaded. I think it was Australia and Papua New Guinea. And it's they Bougainville. A, Bougainville. Yeah. The Bougainville Revolution. And yeah. the Bougainville people, exactly, tri- tribes, people, this huge mine came in, completely decimated their island, their water source, their food source, everything, built some houses for them and made them live in squalor. And then the people finally just stood up and they made their own weapons, their own guns, and they threw over, threw the mine out. And then so they did a blockade on the whole on the whole island, the whole country. Hmm. And Australia, like when, when I was watching this, Australia was just so evil in this. And they did, that's where the coconut revolution came from. Yeah. They, they went into the mine, took whatever parts they could. All these tribes people, they just, everyone had hmm. to become a gardener. They all just planted food. They used coconuts for oil. Yeah. To, um, to for fuel and to, for, to make pumps and everything, to yeah. pump the water, to pump electricity. And they ended up with their own electricity, their own fuel, and um, and their own heat source from the fuel and everything. And they like did everything off coconuts and, and they stayed in peace. And it's yeah. just insane. Like it just, yeah, how they stood up and, and there's still mm-hmm. remnants. Well, that was a huge mine. It took up pretty much half the country. But yeah, I was just like, when I watched that, I was like, wow, you know, mm. they just, they stood up and used all the resources they had and they when the blockade came in they just went well okay we don't need need you guys we'll figure it out and they just went back to the land mm. yeah and they and they once some it took them a while quite often for the tribal people in the jungle to work out what was going on with the oil companies but then when they did and some of the elders cottoned on they said no nah, we don't want it anymore and they blockaded some of the oil companies from coming into their their territory and that was i've got that in my first film too that i made um it's called amazon the invisible people so it looks at uh you know that whole story about the demarcation and the oil companies and colonists and you know interviewing the oil companies and the shamans and everyone else so you know there was quite resistance uh in there um do you want to hear a little story about what happened once with the shaman? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was about to ask, what are these shamans? Like, yeah. What's... So anyway, one one shaman that we met, who was a head man and a, a jaguar shaman, his name was Mingatui. I don't know if he's still alive. But we went. I was invited as while well, we were doing this demarcation thing. I was we were invited um, round to his hut, and uh, the guide, the friend that I was with, Sparrow, he he said. Uh, yeah, he's, he's going to be, he goes into trance and, and communicates with the jaguar spirit. And I went, huh? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, let's go. And you're deep in the jungle. We're way deep. You're like, you know, two days walk from the end of an oil road, you know, into this into this sort of, yeah, in this little village where he's living in a little grass leaf hut. And anyway, so we walk over and we walk in this hut and you could hear him chanting uh, already. And we just sort of, you know, ushered in and, as I walked into the hut, all the hairs stood up on the back of my neck and I just went, holy shit, you know, and I felt like there was a jaguar in the room, you know, I was nearly expecting to look around and see a jaguar sitting in the rafters, you know, and um, so there's, there was definitely like strong jaguar energy there and I don't know what, how he was doing it, but basically he communicates with the jaguar spirit, you know, and, and we can all do that, it's just that we've lost it, you know, um, you know, I've hung out with some other animal communicators and it's possible to communicate with the group conscious of say the the great white shark or the you know anything really but anyway these guys are still fully connected to the spirit realm so anyway i walk in and he's chanting away and and then he'll stop the chant and then he'll say something in his language to his son um, who then 
you know, said it into Spanish to my friend, who then told me in English, in English what was going on. And he was just sort of whispering, saying, oh, yeah, well, he's saying that um, the Warani here, this tribe, shouldn't go in and do a spearing raid against the Tageri. Now, the Tageri is an uncontacted group of the Warani who are living, like, just in the jungle without any contact with missionaries or oil companies or anyone, you know. So they were going to go and do a spearing raid against them because they'd apparently, you know, speared someone else or, you know, taken one of their women or something like that. And... Um, and and Mingatui was saying through the jaguar, or well, the jaguar was saying through Mingatui that he didn't think it was a good idea for the tribe to go and do that spearing raid because the Tageri are protecting the forest for everyone, like all the all the Warani Indians, but also the jaguars and all the animals. Wow! So the so jaguar the spirit is communicating through him through trance, not to do this spearing raid that they were planning, and 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 so they ended up after that little trance session in that communication with the jaguar spirit they decided not to do a spearing raid so, i mean this is just crazy shit that you just think no that couldn't possibly be happening but, uh, it, but i was witness to it you know but man like and and think about that the jaguar is telling it's it's coming from truth there too you, you know what i mean it's like this is their home and it's like you know the, the two tribes even though they're separate they're on the same team for the for the greater good yeah, you know what I mean. It's like these guys are in there, but they're protecting the forest. So you don't make them the enemy right now. Yeah, yeah. And we need ja- we need them because because they're there. The government set up a whole protectorate area, like a huge area around there, where no one's allowed to go in. Like not oil companies, not loggers, not explorers, not anyone. It's it's out of bounds. But if they all die because they've been killed in a spearing raid, then that whole area will open up to loggers and God knows what. You know, so. It was just amazing seeing that uh, ancient form of communication that's still in work. I mean, Mingatui, for example, he's, he lived half or two-thirds of his life completely uncontacted from the outside world. So these guys are like living examples of our Stone Age heritage, you know, and they're still connected to the spirit world and where we've essentially lost most of it and we're struggling to regain it. They've, you know... Not all of them, but you know some of the old guys and the shamans. They're still connected, like our Stone Age heritage. You know, is connected to the spirit world and other dimensions that we don't even know exist. Wow, what's it? What was it like? What was their village like? Look, it's just leaf huts, and um, there's some huts where they've got some galvanized iron that the oil companies have given them. But uh, yeah, you'd walk around to a, a little hut, and there'd be this old grandma in there, sort of and they give you some some chicha you know which is like the yucca that they make and they um to ferment it they put a bit in their mouth and they chew it for a bit mix it with saliva and spit it back into the pot and then that starts a fermentation process off so as soon as you walk into a hut to say hi they quickly fill you up a bowl of this sort of fermented yucca and you've got to drink the whole coconut otherwise they get really upset <laughs> <laughs> and you just imagine that you you're drinking this spit from this old lady with no teeth it's fine you know um what scares me is just you know how much the world is progressing that these like ancient tribes and all these ancient ways are just going to be kind of lost yeah yeah and that was uh that was felt tragic too when i was there i could see it like just in the short time i was there and so i I made a video one of the things i gave back to them was just showing all these old ways of the old guys like even them rubbing two sticks together to make fire and and how they made the karari dart poison you know from the certain vines and how they did that and i made a little video of poisonous darts the amazon tribes like you know uh in apocalypto you know they 
yeah, yeah. shoot in the dark. Same thing. Like they use the frog in that in that movie, which they still use, and that's that's the like. There's a few toads as we talked about, or we'll talk about <laughs> yeah. uh, that have the um, psychotropic effects, but uh, they're um, yeah. There's poison in those in those the patriot glands of the of the toads that they use but the other one is uh karari which is a vine and you just um mix that uh just just boil it or let the water sip through it and then just heat it up very slowly and you take the like the skin off the top of it and put it into a paste and then you put that on the darts and then you know it's a muscle relaxant in fact they discovered that they use it for heart surgery now karari How um, do they figure this? How do these tribes people figure this stuff out? You know, well, exactly. Ancient and it's, knowledge. It's the shamans because they because they're still tapped into the um, the plant and animal world. They speak to the spirits, so they'll walk through along a path and they'll have a plant go, "Hey, I'm good for you know fungus on your feet," or another plant will say, "Hey, I'm good for you know ulcers or whatever," and and they're just direct connection with the with the plant kingdom there there's no separation you know and that's the beautiful thing about these tribes and you know it was sort of sad to see it you know being being lost in a way wow i freaking dream of this type of stuff and also i mean one thing that's interesting too is we where it's you know you wonder how does that happen and that's with the ayahuasca um because modern science only knew that you could um put uh, MAO inhibitor with DMT to make it orally active um, only 30 or 40 years ago, whereas the shamans have known it for thousands of years in the jungle. So basically, you know, how do you work out out of like thousands of plants that if you mix that root, uh, if that vine with those leaves, that you'll have a psychotropic um, visionary result, you know, I mean... There's no way of knowing unless there's some sort of spiritual intervention, you know, or, or you know, the plant's actually telling you, you know. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, it was, that was one big thing from the Amazon. It really taught me is how to, uh, you know, that there's another world going on there that exists that we've just lost contact with because we wear shoes and, and, and don't connect with the earth and we, we've lost our rituals or lost our initiations, you know, as, as, as men and as women. Um, we've lost our elders, you know, and instead we, we rely on the, the seven o'clock news for our information, which has led us to the, you know, the scandemic that we're in at the moment. So what was it like being in these, in these tribes and just being around them being so connected to nature? Like, as in like, you know, there's a shaman talking through the jaguar, there's medicine men talking through plants, you know, like... Um, I'm guessing they're hunting and gathering. What was it? What was the vibe like with the people? What, you know, what was the the vibe like within yourself when you were around them? Yeah, look, it, it's not all romantic. I mean, there's a bit of reality checks that, to happen there too. I remember once when we were on one of these demarcation things, I was in there with my mate Sparrow, and we were drinking a bit of ayahuasca at the time. He just introduced me to it, and uh, ayahuasca is a visionary vine mixed between the you know the the vine and the and the Psychotry of Rudis, you know, it's got the DMT in it, so it's a it's a really strong visionary vine that the shamans have used for thousands of years, mainly for healing, but also to do black magic in the astral realms as well. So anyway, we were um, we were out doing this demarcation, and uh, and we were going to drink some ayahuasca out there because we we're in the middle of the jungle. And we thought, yeah, let's drink some ayahuasca. 
But unfortunately, about a week before we came onto the uh, to do this demarcation work, there'd been a spearing raid uh, with the Warani against some neighbouring uh, Shwa colonists that had moved into Warani territory. And apparently, one of the young girls from the Warani tribe was walking past the back of their house, you know, because it was a en route from the road, and she got bitten by a snake and died. And so... They all thought that the schwa had done black magic to make the snake bite the person. And so, you know, a, a war party of, you know, half a dozen people went out with spears and killed the whole family, just speared them uh, wow. <laughs> in, in their houses. So this sort of stuff goes on. And So because they're so superstitious, did you ever get nervous? Like, oh, hopefully they well, don't think I'm a sign. Well, that's what Sparrow said he says look we're going to drink ayahuasca but you know what um, if we're walking through the bush and someone gets bitten by a snake and they know that we did ayahuasca the night before they'll just come put a spear through us without thinking and, yeah. I thought, and so we thought mm, maybe it's not a good idea to drink ayahuasca tonight so we didn't drink you know but that's that's how real the situation was that you know if if a log would have fallen on someone or someone got bitten by a snake they'd think it was all black magic and, and look you know to tell you the truth I don't doubt that some of that is true. Oh, mate, I've seen it in Indo, the black ma- magic. We, um, I remember my mate Komung Johnny, um, he married his, he married a girl from the tribe he was not supposed to and they had a kid before they were married. Or like, well, he got with this girl that he was not supposed to, had a kid and got married like um, without the tribe's consent. And so they got cursed black magic that once a month her feet would swell. And once a month, her feet would swell. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I remember my uncle saying, like, it's only, it only, it's only if you believe in it, it affects you. Yeah. But I remember the headhunters in um, the north of Nias, up in the hills, we were looking for um, Hujung. Hujung is, uh, no, Hujung's rain. Er Tujung is waterfall. We're looking for Er Tujung. Um, we're looking for waterfalls up in the mountains. Nias, we heard there were some waterfalls there. And we're driving along and, we see some kids on the side of the road, so we pull up and, and um, ask them for directions. You know, we're speaking Indonesian, ask them for directions to the waterfall. And they all just get scared and run away and freak out. And we're like, oh, that was odd. Keep driving up to this village. And these are like, you know, um, old tribe villages that all live in those big, um, those huge big huts with all the, like, um, oh, I don't know what they're called, the pondocks. Like they're, they it's long, like a Nia style long, house. Long houses or? big Smaller. round oh, okay. oh, huge wow. houses yeah. but um ancient style like it yeah, yeah up in and uh we're driving along again we see some kids again and and we pull over and and ask and they run away again anyway next thing we sit we come into this village and it's just these wild you know old ancient houses you know proper village village and um we're like oh we'll just go up to someone's house and ask so we go up there's this guy there eating beetle nut you know all the red and everything we and we ask him and he's right real scared of us and we you know we, we started chatting to him in indonesia and indonesian he takes us into the house and he has all these spears and arrows like right against every door i think there was like three doors to the house and against every door he had masks spears and arrows and we said to him what are these for and he's like oh for the headhunters i said well, what do you mean and he goes oh this is all i've got this on footage we film this it was freaking we're losing it when he's telling us he said the headhunters come from the mainland and they have to come far away and to steal the children. And they come and kidnap the children for sacrifice. Right. And um, and 
I said, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, it's for, for black magic, for sacrifice, but they have to go so far away to get someone from a different bloodline because it's the same bloodline crosses where that, um, where the the curse is put, it'll reverse the curse. And I said, we're saying like, what, what, what do you mean? And so he has these spears to protect his family or the kids of the village if the, if the foreigners come and the foreigners are from mainland. So when these kids see <laughs> foreigners, they've just been told, you know, the, the yeah. headhunters are coming, the wow. foreigners. So that's why they're freaking out from wow. us. So he tells us this one story about this little girl gets kidnapped from their village, gets stolen. And anyway, um, they find her head um, on a bridge in the mainland, like back in, in Sumatra, right? And so this bridge had been built that was connecting like two villages or something and they needed to bless the bridge. So they went far away to a different yeah. bloodline, to a different tribe to steal a kid to sacrifice and put the head on the bridge as a good omen, mm. you know, but they, if someone from that bloodline crosses the bridge, it re reverses the spell. So they have to go far, far away to get, so it's not, so a bloodline would never cross that bridge. Wow. I remember this story is telling me, we're like, what? And we're like, so this, when did this happen? And he's like, oh, like last year. <laughs> what are you talking about? This stuff's still happening. It's like in Sumba, you know, the headhunters over there, you know, they're, got, they're still spearing each other with spears and stuff yeah. over there, you know? It's, um, it's wild, but it's like, that's their, yeah, it's their traditions, I suppose. And yeah, look, I've, I've, um, I've had a few visions, um, you know, with some of the, uh, you know, the, the psychedelic visionary plants and, uh, animals like the, the buffo, various toad, where I've seen, um, even the Mayans doing their killing rituals, you know, chopping the heads off and pulling the hearts out and that sort of thing. And what I've seen and what I've seen all around the world is that uh, religion is used as a tool to, um, to gain more power. And that happens in, in a lot of cultures, you know, that they have the, the, the shamans or the priests that um, want to, you know, have a lot of control over the people and so they instill fear. I mean, we're still seeing it today with our government, you know, it's just in a different mm. way. And so, you know, these medicine men or priests um, uh, it's not necessarily like it, it might have come from from some part of their culture but it's been abused because of their power uh, like they might have been able to go okay energetically we'll we'll bless this with you know something else but instead they're using blood and sacrifice as a as a way to do it which which may have a a similar effect but it's i think it's abuse of power i don't feel that there needs to be any um yeah killing or or like sacrificing or to the gods sacrifice. it's like yeah is the god like oh thanks man i kind of wanted you guys to thrive but okay you just killed one of them for me um yeah cool okay yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's, it's, it's an abuse because you know essentially you know what i've got from doing some of the shamanic rituals is that source and god is 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 love you know there there is no there is no uh desire for any anything which is not love mm. uh coming from source so you know a lot of these uh abusive rituals it's man abusing the power to for their own power why why are there what are demons Look, I think there's dark energies 
and and I've, I've felt them too, um, you know, in various ceremonies, ayahuasca and, and and others, and I think there's there's various forces that operate in the universe, and they're not all seen, uh, and there's also various dimensions that exist that we're not aware of. Um, sometimes doing these these ceremonies, you you get glimpses of these other dimensions, and then when you go into those dimensions, you start seeing some of the energies or feeling some of the energies that exist in those dimensions and i've felt you know like what's going on today at the moment you know i've felt there's a, there's a there's a battle going on between the light and the dark mm. forces um and uh you know it's it's a little bit like you know the, the story with the two wolves you know which one are you going to feed you know you you feed the the angry fearful wolf or the the light and loving wolf and and so i think that's our challenge for everyone is to is to you know to choose love all the time and yeah there's these dark energies out there and they're working and they're trying to make get recruits but whenever you deviate from that that point where you know is you know is right you know like for example standing at a door and or you know asking your employees to get vaccinated with experimental gene therapy you know or you'll sack them you know or you just like a lot of businesses in byron they're saying we're not going to do that we're going to close down until december the first and where everything's supposed to go back to normal which i'm still not sure that that's going to happen rather than uh you know compromise their ideals and you know i think you know the more people who do that and stand up for what they know is right uh, rather than what they're just being told by the various forces that exist you know and some of those forces are dark um, then you know we've got a chance of guiding humanity into a positive evolution mm. but at the moment you know there's so much dark energy around demons you know whatever you want to call them that um, it's a big challenge it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a big challenge because people have got to find their power uh, and, and not be controlled by fear which has been the main guiding tool you know um through humanity is like you know fear your your, your neighboring tribe they might invade you or you know and 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 you know so we've got to we've got to change the way we think you know we've got to move more into just trusting unconditional love as being the guiding force rather than fear with the shamans in the amazon you know they're saying like they you know spearing people and they and they do ayahuasca there which is you know like you know like um ego splitting and and when you go into the the, the that astral world you know through dmt you know your ego gets split a lot and you are left with source and love and you're able to see truth if they're doing that all the time do you know why they're still spearing each other there's a lot of shamans that are use the the ayahuasca in different ways some just use it for healing uh, and they're curanderos you know and and people will come to them if they've got a, a bellyache or a infection or a you know whatever and the, they'll drink ayahuasca together and the shaman will see oh you've got parasites in your stomach you know take this herb you know um but there's some some other shamans you know called brujos that um they will take ayahuasca and go into these astral realms and they'll use it for power you know, abuse of powers like the the mayans like a lot of the sacrificial you know tribes have done so they're like the witch doctors yeah. Like in Indonesia, how you have the witch doctors. Well, you know, the, you still have a witch doctor and, and, and may still be, you know, using those powers for good, like for healing and yeah. stuff. But you still, because we're quite a diverse species, you know, you're going to have those uh, people have gone into the into that training and that world to, black to get black magic, to get more yeah. power and control. It's funny how like... Which it, is what our governments are doing at the moment. They're like the brujos. It's funny how like every tribe is always, or like, you know, 
all these like cultures around the world have had black magic like you see it in indonesia i remember where my uncle lived the the manku um in the village yeah the black magic and you had to be really careful of him because yeah yeah he studied black magic he was a shaman or they're a manku not a shaman um but yeah like he's the one that like decides who puts does spells on people you know or revert it makes them irrevert or like reverses them mm. and then like the indians like the indian tribe in america like you know how you see in the movies or like in tri like you see the black magic come in like there's we're watching it in that movie last night i mean hercules that we watched on the beach <laughs> and that projector and, and this on this remote island that we're at some yachties bought a bought a projector to the beach and we we're watching this movie Her hercules 2 which is hilarious an australian movie but you had that lady in it who was the oh the seer yeah the black magic yeah. kind of lady you know casting the spells yeah. you know like the witch you know yeah. so it's 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 funny because like this is throughout all our history and our tales you know it's like through all stories and then you know and, and now we live in this like advanced western world and we just kind of shun this stuff off and connection stuff but like you know when you do connect into ayahuasca or you do live in villages in indonesia oh i'll tell you a story <laughs> well oh god i gotta try and remember her name god what was her name when i was lived in west Sumbawa, um the main receptionist for the surf camp, which I ended up working in after, but this is when Guy and Jai, um, two mates of mine, worked in, in the surf camp. And the main girl there, God, what was her name? For this story's sake, let's call her Jenny, <laughs> right? Jenny was a very, she's very switched on, one of the smartest girls there. She pretty much run the resort that, you know, and then my mate Guy at the time run run like the surf kind of thing but he she run like the indonesian side very switched on um intelligent you know her life together anyway one night one night she goes into this trance where she falls on the ground and starts having this seizure where her eyes go into the back of her head and she gets up and starts going wild throwing all this stuff around and a few of the indonesians run in and like grab her and it takes six men to hold this small little girl down mm. right and my mates they're going my mate guy the south african dude that's running is going what the hell's happening to her let's get her to the hospital so they take her to the hospital and she's in this trance going and the doctor comes out and he's like no nah, we need we need the manku like we need um the witch doctor so the witch doctor comes out and she has a freaking demon in her yeah. and they have to do all these ceremonies to pull the demon out of her. Yeah. And so, and this is like a full on thing. I know this girl, like I ended up working with her after, let's keep calling her Jenny. And she was, she's just amazing, really switched on, really there, you know, and she just goes into this trance one night where six men can't even hold her down and she's like throwing shit around, breakers and screaming like, like, like she's dying. And they go to the doctor the doctor can't do anything and they take her to the witch doctor and the witch doctor has to do these spells and ceremony on her and gets the demon out of her you know and this is like the village that i was living in in indonesia and this was just real like this stuff happened all the time you know it's like oh yeah this is the stuff and when we're in our world it's like oh, it's quite fanciful you're like oh what but that's it's it's funny that is our way um being so disconnected from that kind of stuff is is through you know, um, dimethyltryptamine or through the ayahuasca world, through those astral worlds. And, um, you know, you and I have done a podcast completely on that subject, which is so interesting. And so, um, which is, you know, your experiences and my experience of that. And, and, and I'll post that after this, this episode, but it's, um, which I'm so excited for, but it's, uh, 
Yeah, <laughs> it's like... Well, well, also in this country too, which I didn't understand uh, earlier on, you know, the Aboriginal people, they, they, they've got their shamans and their you know, witch doctors or, or wise men, elders, uh, keepers of the knowledge. And, uh, and if someone done something wrong or whatever, they, the, the, the shaman or the, um, you know, the witch doctor or whatever you want to call him would uh, point the bone someone and then they they would just die. die yeah yeah and uh you know i used to think oh that's just make-believe you know and who knows i'm not part of that culture so i can't speak with authority but um just seeing how uh the the shamans in the amazon they'll work on the astral realms too and they'll send poison darts and and you know there's there's, there's lots of stories there about uh you know shamans either fighting each other or or, or choosing to um you know kill the son of a shaman because you know they're they're in war and and they just the son just wakes up dead in the in the morning you know i mean it doesn't wake up you know he's dead, <laughs> yeah he's yeah, dead yeah they because, get up he's... because they, they've they've killed him in the astral plane and uh you know this stuff has been going on for a while and you know you could, it could just be coincidence and stories and all that stuff but I don't think so. Do you feel so lucky um, that you got to experience all that, that you got to go into deep tribes in the Amazon? Like, not many white people have experienced that, have they? Mm. No, I guess not. Um, I guess it's just part of m- my desires to, you know, push the edges, push the boundaries, um, you know, and just not accept anything as, as gospel, you know. Like, I, I went in there originally to help the indigenous people you know with defending their lands and that was just something that was sort of like a gift that was given back to me in a way you know just to give have a glimpse of their their world and uh yeah it's very special and and you know uh, not all people need to do that but it's nice just sharing this with listeners to you know some people just say oh no that's all crap but other people might say wow you know i didn't realize that world existed you know i know well it's it's funny it's um yeah, it's the people that have experienced that, you know, like I've got, you know, friends that, have, you know, have done ayahuasca and everything and it's just all been life-changing for them and, and it's it's funny, like when, it's really nice when you get to talk about that world to people or world or, you, or that, I don't know, I don't know what it is, you know, you can, it's that's what it is, you can't explain it, but all it does for me is it just goes, wow, life is way bigger than this right here, you know, life is way bigger than you know, this system of society that we're kind of like living in with this industrialness and like everything. And it's like, and I just find it, it's the more that for me, the more I connect to nature, like right now, like I'm about to leave you guys and I'm going to be living in this little hut that I'm making on the beach and I'm just going to be hanging out and, and hanging out with yachties that pass by and, and spear some fish and just, and forage on this Island. Just, and just, you know, I was, I was there last night. That was such an amazing experience last night to, to have that little movie night that we had with a few yachties on the beach and I, I went down to the beach and um yeah just to, and I looked up at the stars and we we're in this beautiful little bay and I was like I had that much excitement and like love in me that I'm like on this beautiful island and I'm just gonna and I'm just getting to connect to it you know it's like I I realized yesterday I don't really know this island you know like we've been here for a little bit but I haven't explored it I haven't fully connected to it yet mm. and I'm about to like when I'm just here and making it my home like the Keppels I've done that you know the Keppels I've camped on on them so much and I've really connected and I've seen the spirits there which uh, was it did I tell you that story about 
Uh, I might have told her on a podcast before, but I was camping in tent in the middle of the island, no one around, by myself, and someone starts walking around the tent. And I've got my bush ears on. Like, I live in the bush. I, I know what human footsteps are. I know what, And there's goats on the island. So I'm like, listening for goats. And I'm like, that's not goat footsteps. That's human footsteps. And I'm like, start freaking out. I'm like, there's no one here but me. And there's someone walking around my tent. So I start yelling out, like, who's out there? Who's out there? And I was like, oh, my God. And it's still going. So I grab my headlamp and I grab my, no- my dive knife and I jump out of the tent ready to, like, oh, who's there? You know, like... You know, no one's answered me. It's got to be someone weird. <laughs> you know, it's got to be some weird island dude suddenly come from nowhere. To... Anyway, I jump out and the sound's suddenly gone and I'm looking around for where it was and right where the sound was, suddenly there's this rustling, a different sound and I look down and it's these two echidnas. <laughs> and echidnas, you know, are, are welcoming from the spirits, you know. They're mm-hmm. saying like, welcome. And it was just this like beautiful thing. You know, there's so many Aboriginals slaughtered on that island, especially in that cave. You know, and and to go in there and you feel that energy there, but and there's something so healing. Every everyone that is connected to that island that I know, they all say the same thing. It's so healing. People go to that island and just heal. You know, and um, I realized yesterday, it's like, wow, I wonder what this island's going to teach me. You know, what camping here is going to be for me. What connecting to this island, to the nature mm-hmm. here is going to be. You know, it's it's really cool to see that there's kangaroos here. There's eagles everywhere. There's um. You know, it's a pretty big island. One thing that a, a friend of mine sort of taught me, John Seed, uh, again from the Rainforest Information John Centre. John Seed? He yeah. is a neighbour of yeah. mine. <laughs> he's a legend. Uh, he's been working for like 60 years on conservation, you know. So what he says is that if you connect with one tree, you connect with them all. So what I quite often do when I come to an island or a, a new area of a forest or whatever, I'll just put my forehead and my third eye and connect to the tree and just drop in and uh and just say thank you for receiving me uh, or or even ask permission to to be there you know um and then just drop in to letting it know that i really appreciate it and i'm not here to take anything from it you know i'm just here to yeah. to be and feel and then i feel like that message goes out to all the trees and all the forests and all the land and and sometimes even when i enter a, a beach you know i'll, I'll put my head down and I'll touch my forehead on the beach and just say, you know, can I, can I come aboard and can I welcome and I honour the, the mm. ancestors from, that, from the land too because they're still all around. And, and so I find when I do that and give respect and honour the elements and the ancestors that there's an opening that happens, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'm able to drop in deeper. Well, like when when they when I saw these echidnas and that realization of like the spirits and like what echidnas mean, you know, their their symbolic, you know, their animal sign. It was like, wow, they're saying welcoming, you know, because they I do love that island and I am connected there, and I feel it's a very special place. And they and I was just like, oh, they know that they know I'm not here to harm, and they're just like, sick, yeah, dude, have a good time. Mm-hmm. Like it was just this because I had this thing that as a as being white you know that you know the white man slaughtered so many aboriginals there and that me being i don't often just descent you know i'm white so it's like so um i was and then when that happened that you know that spirit sign for me it was like wow yeah that wasn't me that did that to them and they're not even seeing that they're just seeing me as a human with a heart and loving their space that or, or their island and they kind of just kind of gave me their blessing if you, mm. that's what I felt, you know, that's what yeah. my intuition felt, you know, it was like <clears throat> at midnight or I don't know, I was in the middle of the night 
and there were some strange things going on, mm. you know. My hairs were on the back of my neck when I felt, when I, mm. you know. And quite often, you know, nature will give us symbols and, and signs, you know, and we've just, uh, you know, learnt to not notice them. Mm. Uh, you know, an eagle might fly by or something or a, a whale. I remember this funny story when I was going out looking for Migaloo, the white whale. I went out with an Aboriginal elder and to connect because we heard it was swimming by, you know, Byron Lighthouse and could be going by at any time. So we went out there and, and this whale was peck slapping, so slapping its pectoral fins and it slapped five times. And the elder said, oh, we're going to see Migaloo at five o'clock. And I just thought, oh, yeah, oh, that's quaint, you know. And, you know, thinking, yeah, it's just a whale slapping its fins, you know. And uh, and sure enough, you know, we got to four, four o'clock, you know, sailing south to try and meet it. And we decided we had to turn back or we wanted to turn back because we had to get people back to shore and whatever. Um, but later on, we found out that if we would have kept going, if I would have listened to this elder, if I would have followed the signs, Megaloo was one hour further south from where we were. So we would have actually met Megaloo at five o'clock and the whale was telling us that. But because I'm a, a Westerner that's relatively out of touch compared to the indigenous, I didn't pick up the sign. And that was a big lesson for me. So, you know, whenever I'm out and about and I see something, I go, oh, that's a sign. Yeah, we had this spirit animal book and me and my ex-girlfriend when we were living in Canada, she had just been at this meditation with her mum and... Um, she was doing this oneness course this weekend of meditation where she'd been in silence and she came back and she was kind of like a she had i think she was triggered by her mum. she had some inner child stuff come up and and i'm all excited to to see her and i've like got some stuff like some dinner for her and everything and she just bursts in the door in this like fury of anger and starts yelling at me <laughs> just like she wasn't yelling at me she just came in in a, in a crap mood and i must have got triggered too by it and next thing before we knew it the two of us are in this freaking argument and it's about midnight and we're in this dumb argument and I'm like, that's it. No, I'm going, man. I'm freaking, I just need some space. I'm going for a walk. She's like, you can't leave. It's like minus 20 degrees. Like, but, you know, it was like meter deep snow outside. And I was like, no, nah, fuck it. I need to go. You know, when you just got to get away, someone's yelling at you. <laughs> it's like, I'm fucking going. <laughs> and I go for this walk and I'm walking along the street all pissed off going, fucking Lexi blowing up at me, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> and I'm looking in front of me. And I'm looking at this, like, dog walk in front of me, like, in the distance. And I'm, like, thinking, as I'm pissed off at Lexi, going, oh, I'm, like, looking and going, fuck, that's a big tail on that dog. And then I'm, like, walking along. And then, I'm like, fuck, yeah, that tail is real big. And then the dog kind of goes to the side. And, and I keep walking along. And then next thing, I just stop. And all the hairs are on the back of my neck. And I'm just, like, oh, my God. You know, like, intuition is just picked up, like, fear. You know, like, you know, danger, danger, danger. And I just turn. And I look to my side and there's this big white wolf just sitting there, lone wolf, just looking straight at me, just the two of us just to iron each other off. And I just went, oh, fuck. And I just legged it. <laughs> like probably what I shouldn't have done. I don't know. But I just started running. And I, I turned back and I saw the wolf running the other way, which is good. I think we both spooked each other when I ran. But anyway, I'm just freaking running back. I'm running. And I run up the stairs to the place where we're living, through the snow and everything, open the door. As soon as I open the door, Lexi's there going, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to argue with you. And she's like, starts crying. And I start hugging her. And then and I was like, I just saw a wolf. I nearly, you know, she's like, and so she, we grabbed the animal book. 
and we pull it out and it was like this wolf sign and um it was like it said something to do with like whatever problems in front of you right now that you think's a problem means nothing let it go just <laughs> let it go <laughs> Yeah. And it was like, and it was just like the two of us just looked at each other. I just remember we burst into laughter. We just started laughing about how stupid we were, and um, yeah, it was just funny. Just yeah, I yeah signs. I take from that, that was a big lesson for me. So now I really take signs from nature, really um, personally. Oh man! And, and they're they're to guide us. Nature's there. It's such a good tool. Like I always say to people, if they want to tune in, you don't have to go to. Uh, ashram or this or that you know just go and sit next to a tree close your eyes start breathing and start just listening and just dropping in to being in full presence with the mm. with the forest and with nature and you'll get whatever you need you know especially if you can stop the monkey mind from just chattering all the time you yeah. know then you let let nature uh, give you what you need and it does you know if you're if you're open and if you ask for it as well when i was living on my oh, when i was when i was first living on my land i was living in a swag and just open to the to the stars next to a fire and i lived like that for a good year and um i would go to sleep with the forest and wake up with the forest and it's like you know the, the forest comes alive like an hour before sunrise you know and i was and i'd move in different parts of the forest and sleep in different parts you know to like connect with different parts of, of, of my land and i i feel so connected to my land now but it's just it's just it was so grounding i i, I felt so good within myself like being part of the forest and going to sleep with the animals you know what i mean like and then waking up with them, you know, and being part of that, all the birds are coming alive, they're playing, and you're like, I'm laying there, and I start watching him play as the sun comes up, and, you know, they're not, they become not scared of you, you just become part of the nature, you know? Mm. It gets to the point where it's annoying, the kangaroos won't move for me if I'm trying mm. to mow. <laughs> mm. Yeah, look, I, I just, getting back to what all this is about, you know, I I see the the bigger picture for me is, is assisting human evolution to to move in a positive direction because we can go anyway you know we've got free will here so we can go down the road of of communists you know communism you know, fascist dictators whatever or we can go through down the path of uh, self-sustainable communities and getting back to tribe and and just loving each other more and so you know for me what i'm always trying to do is to look at okay how would i like humanity to evolve you know would I, do i want to see people living in fear and separation or do i want you know people to 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 love one another and assist each other and 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 if i do then i have to incorporate that in my own life because i've seen a, a lot of um anger um in 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 all movements you know in the in the in the the COVID movement from both sides, you know, in the anti-nuclear, in the forest, you know, there's there's anger and separation out there. So, you know, for me, the best thing I can do is to incorporate that unconditional love as much as possible in my life, in my reality. Yeah. And from that, that can emanate outwards, you know, and I can put little little messages in there sometimes on Facebook just to sort of say, hey, people, you know, um, let's just choose love and be aware when fear is trying to get a hold and uh, but you know just incorporating that 
principle of consciously choosing love is my favourite, uh, yeah. you know, little catchphrase at the moment. Be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. I always say it. I say it every episode. Just, it's just so freaking relevant. Yeah, it's like how, how this is what it's been for me lately and actually what the, the medicine, um, the plant medicine was kind of showing me was connect back to my true self and and my sole purpose and how do I want to show up in this world? You know, exactly that. It's like, how do I want to show up? What type of world do I want to live in? Mm. You know, and it's, I think it's more prominent now than ever because it's like, you know, in just in my lifetime, this is the most fear and separation that I've seen within mm. people. And it, mm. and that scares me because, you know, it's it scares me when I talk to my mum because my mum, it's like she's, it gives me so much anxiety. She's shaking with fear talking to me about something mm. i'm like yeah i don't know it's and look just, just bringing it back to to um our own life too i mean just recently i've um i mean i've been a vegetarian for nearly all my life you know like um since i was 15 really and sometimes i'll eat fish like when i'm out uh on the on the ocean you know it's an obvious thing to do um but i i bring ceremony and prayer and and uh, and and acknowledgement of the life force in front of me you know if if i do kill a fish you know which doesn't happen that often, but it's, it's, it's honoring life. And I think one of the big things which is going to help change humanity in a positive way is, is to, when you, we see abuses going on, it can happen on many levels. It can happen with the environment. It can happen on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, all sorts of levels. And, and one of the levels that I see going on at the moment is, is, um, is, is meat eating. And, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, the meat that people eat, it's got a lot of fear in it, you know, because a lot of the abattoirs and the mm. whatever, they, they, they smell the death as they're going in. So we're, we're consuming that and we're also buying into the, um, you know, the, the suffering that, uh, of, of these animals, which we think is separate to us and everything, we're connected to everything. So, you know, for me, um, recently I've, I've, I'm, uh, uh which is called a transitioning vegan, you know. So I'm going from vegetarian to veganism. I've, you know, I did have some cheese a couple of months ago, but um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm working a lot more now to just eating food which doesn't have any suffering attached to it, uh, or if if there is some suffering that it's, um, you know, it's it's done in an honourable way, like with the with the mm. fish, you know, or if you're killing your own animal, you know, like somehow honouring the life force that that it is you're taking. I think a lot of people have disconnected from that. And so they're disconnected from the life force of that's existing on this planet. And I think a big change that we're seeing at the moment is there are being a lot more vegetarians, a lot more people conscious of what they're eating rather than just getting a steak in a polystyrene packet in a supermarket. They're actually going, okay, well, no, I'm going to grow a veggie patch out the back or I'm going to go to the farmer's market and get my produce direct from someone who grows it. And so they're connecting more with the life forces of the planet and that's bringing them more into alignment of 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 the good energies here you know and that's that's said without judgment of anyone who eats meat or mm. whatever it's just uh, i see that as a, a change and a big change that's happening at the moment is this awareness of what we put into our bodies we we incorporate in our energy field so mm. just wanted to slip that one in <laughs> Yo, energy is huge and and what would you say to to anyone wanting to stand like you've stood up your whole life protesting for everything you've you've believed in and and to to spread more love in the world so what would you say to anyone that you know is is scared to do that but wants to yeah look again whenever there's any 
fear that comes in, feel where the fear is sitting in your body and then go, okay, well, I, I have a fear about being arrested because, you know, my father used to give me the strap or whatever, you know, I've got a fear of authority or whatever, you know, feel it and then move into your heart, move into your power center mm. and uh, realize what is influencing you and uh Again, just don't let fear control you. That's my, that's my motto in this world is never be controlled by fear. It's funny. Um, after I had some cer- like did, did a ceremony uh, the other week and I was doing a lot of breath work with, um, with psilocybin after this, this other ceremony. And um, yeah, yeah, and the whole thing about connecting to my sole purpose and, and living my truth and everything. And I was doing this meditation and it suddenly came to... I don't know how I got there, but it just suddenly came to the acceptance of not fearing and being willing to die by the sword. And I say that as like the metaphor, but as in like, it was, it was the first like kind of big step in this meditation of this so much power came within me that it's okay to like stick up for my truth and my heart. And it was just this, it was, I don't know, I don't know. It was just like, I did this ceremony and it was connecting to, to, to my sole purpose and to love. And then it was um, doing this breath work and it just suddenly came to me as like, it was like accepting death in a way, but in the most beautiful way, I was like, step into my power and don't fear. You know what I mean? Like just, I don't need to, need to fear anything. All I need to do is be me and my true self. Mm. And it's like, do it's not, and that's worth dying for. And I mean, dying by the sword. And I, I don't mean just physically dying. I mean, like if I'm not being myself, then who I am, am I? I'm already dead in a way, you know? Yeah, and and once you've done some of these psychotropics like ayahuasca or the or the toad that we'll talk about later, you experience. Well, for me, I experience like a a death state, like an ego death, and 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 you're merging with the white light, and and so you become not so scared about death. You know, not that I'm running out or that I want to throw myself under a, a bulldozer or whatever at the moment. I, I, you know, I'm enjoying this life, and I've got a lot more work to do in it yet. But I don't fear it like I used to. I don't let it control me. The fear of death control me so much, mm. um, and that's I guess one of the uh, offshoots of doing these uh, the strong uh, entheogens, these strong uh, psychedelic uh, plant medicines, especially under proper guidance, is that you know we we do experience these other realms, these bardo states, you know, between life and death, and 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 we helps us to lose some of the fear that we can carry around death. Yeah, it's like Buddha says, as soon as we accept death, we're free. And, you know, in well, way. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I'm pretty free at the moment, you yeah. know. Um, and, and well, you uh, don't live through fear as soon yeah. as you accept it, you know. Yeah. You're, not, you're not living through fear anymore, you're just living. To, and that's with the acknowledgement that one day your time's up and that's just it. Yeah. So it's like, just live free. Yeah, and I used to also think, and I would even suggest that it's, it's important for everyone to experience jail. You know, like jail is is not the big boogeyman that we've been told. You know, I spent a month in jail after doing the paint bombing on the warships, and uh, and after doing that, this whole stigma of like, oh, I better not do anything wrong because I'll get put in jail. You know, it's like, nah, get 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 over it. You know, it's it's just a, like <laughs> a big, it's just, it's just like a big men's camp. No, it, it is. It's like yeah. an initiation in a way. Yeah. And and you, most of the people who are in jail, they've been screwed by the system. You know, 80% of the people that are in jail when I was there were there from drug-related offences, you know, like because they've made like some of these plant medicines that actually wake you up, um, 
you know, they don't want people to take it, so they've made it illegal. So they're in jail because they don't want people to wake up, you know. Yeah. And, and so, you know, um, yeah, jails, it's just a big men's camp or women's camp. And, you know, you just got to trust, you know, even if they say, oh, we're going to put you in jail if you do this, don't let that stop you doing it, you know. Yeah, Dean, Dean. You're so interesting, man. You've just had <laughs> such an interesting life. I've got to I've, thank you for, as you know, as a person from this, this from Mother Earth, <laughs> saying thank you for standing up so much and everything that you've done and and that you believe in and all your stories, man, and and not just the ones like on this podcast, the ones that you've told me off mic have just been so interesting and so inspiring. Just seeing all the stuff you've done in the in the world. But I've got to tell the listeners that everything that we've just said now. You know, we've got another episode coming where we dive in with with Dean, where he, um, where we dive into five meo DMT, which is um, the spirit molecule. You know, Joe Rogan did a documentary. Was Dennis Dennis McKenna in that doco? Dennis and Terrace. Joe Rogan. No, when he did the spirit I, molecule. I don't know. No, well, he might have talked with Rick Straussman if it's the spirit molecule. He did because that's more on DMT, but the the God molecule. Um, I know he's spoken with uh, Mike Tyson because Mike Tyson, the boxer, had uh, experience with, with the toad medicine that totally changed his world. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they, they call that one the, the God molecule. The spirit molecule is like, is the NNDMT, and then the, the God molecule is like the 5-MeO-DMT, which comes from the, from the Sonoran Desert toad in Mexico. <laughs> it's so interesting. This podcast coming is so interesting. I love it. That's what I, I love listening to Joe Rogan with like either Paul Stemmets or um, Graham Hancock or Terrence McKenna or, or Dennis McKenna, McKenna stuff that, that he had. It's just so interesting, all this stuff. And, and that do, um, documentary that Joe Rogan hosted, um, called DMT the spirit molecule is <laughs> just so interesting and then I get to sit down with you and we did this whole episode and, and you told me so many experiences and that and that episode is going to come up after this so so listeners um, Dean's coming back <laughs> some really interesting out there stories and um, keep an open mind it's 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 out there but it's freaking cool yeah. As I remember, after one of the experiences I had in Mexico, one of the shamans there says, what's going on here is is so outrageous. I don't expect anyone to believe me, but it happened to me, so I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's about where it's at. You know, like you, you couldn't expect anyone to believe what you experience. said, experience, mm. you experienced, because it's just so far beyond our perceptions of what is possible mm. that there is no description for it but yet it feels so real and it teaches you so much it's inside so real like it's helped me connect so much to my heart you know all right let's get out of here this is <laughs> such good story time i need to jump in this water it's getting yeah. hot we're on yeah. the percy island group we're with your beautiful girlfriend sandra and we're on migaloo too and life's just grand yeah it's awesome and if anyone wants any more information about the doco i'm making called the toad the whale and the sun um, they can check out my, my website called toadwellsun.com. Toadwellsun.com. And then the next episode with Dean, we're going to be diving right into what the toad, the sun. <laughs> and the whales, yeah. And the whales are together. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Thanks. Yeah, this is what this whole thing is about. You know, this, this expression of this experience that I'm having right. The, the podcast is the expression of my experience and my trip is the experience just taking me. And it's like that was the whole point. It's just go and meet people along the way, see who I'm, yeah, see who, who I end up with, you know. And like, so I got to interview Sage. That's a great episode. Now I get to interview you. Great episode. And then who else am I going to meet out here? I'm just so excited. 
Yeah. All right, listeners, enjoy. We'll see you next time. Ciao. Thanks, Dino. Thank you. I hope you guys like this episode. Now, remember, I've got prizes to give away for whoever shares it for me. Go on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, put it on your social media story, tell your mum. Send me a message, send me a screenshot, or I'm just going to see it on Apple Podcasts anyway, or I'm going to see it on social media, and every week I'm going to pick someone and I'm going to send them an Opino Knife or a Diaries of the Wild Ones t-shirt. Enjoy, guys, and thanks for listening. Do it like a double.